Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Pip Patterson. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education at the University of Sydney. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight to this evening's Sydney Ideas presentation by Professor Ian Golden on this fabulous topic, Renaissance 2.0, the disruptive changes shaping our world and our future. Professor Ian Golden was the founding director of the Oxford Martin School for the 10 years prior to September last year. And he's currently Professor of Globalisation and Development at Oxford University. He's also Senior Fellow at the Oxford Martin School, Director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technological and Economic Change, and a Professorial Fellow at Balliol College. Professor Golden has a distinguished record of contribution to development and research, and has published over 50 articles and 20 books. His most recent book, Age of Discovery, was co-authored with Chris Katana and published last year and I'm sure we'll hear some of the wonderful ideas from that work this evening. As director of the Oxford Martin School, Ian initiated the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations, which brought together international leaders from government, business, academia, media and civil society to address the growing short-term preoccupations of modern politics and business and identify ways of overcoming today's gridlock in key international negotiations. The Commission's report, now for the long term, was published in October 2013. During his outstanding career, Ian has also been Vice President of the World Bank, the World Bank's Director of Development Policy, Chief Executive and Managing Director of the Development Bank of Southern Africa, an advisor to President Nelson Mandela, Principal Economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London, and Director of the OECD Programme on Trade, Environment and Sustainable Development. Ian has degrees in Arts and Science from the University of Cape Town, an MSc from the London School of Economics, and an MA and Doctorate from the University of Oxford. It's an enormous pleasure to welcome Ian to the University of Sydney this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming <laughs> Professor Golden to address us. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a huge pleasure to be here uh, and to be back in Sydney and to share some ideas about the critical changes that will affect the world over coming decades. And it's a particular pleasure to be here and to be able to see my cousins again, my godchild again, and old friends who live here. So uh, it really is a special, special evening for me. What I want to race through is some of the driving forces of change that I think will shape our futures and try and make sense of this incredible time we're in. Many of you might be surprised by what's happening. Uh, you might wonder what's next and why people are voting uh, in this sort of way. Uh, and this is a global phenomenon. This is President Zuma in South Africa, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, who similarly have been able to ride a wave of protest and populism against what is happening. I believe that this is all related to globalization and this time in history 
that we find ourselves. The most incredible time, the best time in human history to be alive, but also the time of greatest change and uncertainty. And the story really begins with the Berlin Wall coming down, which is symbolic of walls coming down everywhere. I was living in Paris when this wall came down. I thought it was an incredible thing. I thought it was about Eastern Europe. I didn't imagine for a minute that it would touch my life and fundamentally transform the world in the way it has. But as you'll be aware, within four months, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Within a year, he came to Paris. We met for dinner, and he asked me to go back to South Africa, be his economic advisor, and run the Development Bank of Southern Africa. And what I realized in that is that things that seem totally unconnected to our lives in the future and in this time will touch them intimately. And that really is the story of interconnectedness, of globalization. And so we need to be much more aware of what's happening everywhere because it will change our lives. It will transform everything we care about in the coming decades. Because the walls have come down, there are two billion more people in the world. Ideas have traveled and technologies which are leading people to live longer, healthier lives around the world. Infant mortality coming down dramatically and life expectancy going up. Simple ideas like smoking kills you, wearing a safety belt keeps you alive. Ideas like that and very complicated ideas like those embedded in new cures for cancer, in new technologies, vaccinations and so on, traveling around the world. And as the walls come down and as ideas and technologies and products and services move around the world, the opportunities for people are fundamentally different to what they have been before. And that's why this is the best time in human history to be alive. Not just for poor people that would have died of malnutrition or died from a disease that they can now be vaccinated against, but also for all of us. So it's an incredible time. It's a renaissance moment where our creativity is flowering like never in human history because these walls have come down, because ideas are traveling faster, and because literacy has gone up so rapidly. In a world of 5 billion people in the 19, late 1980s, 3 billion people were illiterate. In a world today of 7.3 billion, there's barely 1 billion illiterate people. So we see this massive increase in the number of educated people. And if you believe in education as the driver of change, then there's a lot more brilliant students out there and faculty around the world. When I first went to China in 1979, there were only about 70 people doing doctoral degrees. This year, there are over 250,000 people doing doctoral degrees. So quantums of education. But it's not just individuals that change the world, it's teams. You expect more Shakespeare's and Einstein's to emerge, but they won't emerge from the old streets of London and New York and Vienna. They'll emerge from Shanghai and Mumbai and elsewhere. But it's these people connecting with others around the world that will really break the mold and bring change. So, for example, the group working in the Oxford Martin School on new cures for cancer is working on a 24-hour research cycle with data in the cloud, with labs in Shanghai, Mumbai, Paris, London, Oxford, San Francisco, New York, etc. 24-hour research cycle, data in the cloud, 
the way that ideas are being formed and the way that inventions are being formulated is totally different to anything that could be imagined in the past. So expect more change. Today is the slowest day you will know for the rest of your lives. There's a big debate about whether innovation is speeding up or slowing down. And you'll be aware of a series of authors, Peter Thiel, Gary Kasparov, Robert Gordon, and others, who are arguing that it's slowing down. But I think they're profoundly misguided. Because what's happening in the world in terms of creativity, the unlocking of genius and the unlocking of collaboration, will transform what we understand and what happens in dramatic new ways. And of course, it's that interconnectedness that is of a quantum difference to anything that went before. The World Wide Web developed in the same period as the Berlin Wall came down. So we moved from a world of only about 300 million people connected in the late 80s, sharing information, to a world today of 5 billion people connected and sharing information. And of course, that is very significantly different. If you just believe in the random distribution of creativity, that is what's going to happen. But it's the sparks between people, and particularly diverse groups of people with different perspectives that really create change. And that's happening in all spheres. Whether it's people learning from each other to hip-hop dance on YouTube videos across the world, or whether it's quantum physicists, the pace of learning is much more rapid. Over 80% of the world now living in a major city or less than an hour away from a major city, with the access to everything that is needed to change your life and to transform the lives of others through creating things and convincing people. There are lots of ways to depict this remarkable period. But if you just look at these financial flows, and because I'm an economist, I look a lot at finance, you see the story. Relatively stable and flat flows till about 1990, much higher orders of magnitude and much more instability in the period subsequently to that. The red line is foreign direct investment, the green line remittances, what migrant workers send back, the black line portfolio, that's bond and equity flows, and the blue line official flows, aid and other. So the story of globalization is the story of much higher levels of flow and much more instability is a characteristic of this. And of course, virtually any flow you look at will reflect this, except some like mobile traffic. But the second dimension is complexity. Not only are these flows of much higher orders of magnitude, the number of participants in these flows is very different to that what it was before. This is just trade flows from before the Berlin Wall came down and afterwards. And you see this complexity, and that has become much, much greater. So, for example, just in our mobile devices, like an iPhone, you'll have suppliers from about 30 countries in this one device. Interesting that many people that are against globalization aren't against their iPhones. But these are this absolutely archetypal product of this period. Complex, multi-sourced, hyper-connected. So when we look at this period, in the long sweep of the last 2,000 years, we see this most remarkable story. We see income growth that's red, exponential, the right-hand axis, and population growth, green, arithmetic, the left-hand axis. Income growth much more rapid than population growth, 
both rising at unprecedented levels. There's a period about a thousand years ago when income growth exceeded population. That's when Asia and Europe met each other, when ideas that were developed in Asia were brought to Europe. People leapfrogged. It didn't last. Our period is different. And the great challenge of our time is thinking about what's next. Where does this go? And also understanding that the past cannot provide a precedent to the future because we're in a different time in history. What's happening here is orders of magnitude different in complexity and in connectivity. So we're in a big interlocking network system. It's important to realize how special this time is and how wonderful it is, because I'm going to be telling you many things that will scare you. But when you go to bed tonight, I want you to remember the good news. Sleep well. This is the best time in human history to be alive. This is the new renaissance. And I believe it's that because creativity is greater than any time in history. And our achievements are greater in a very short period of time than any time in history. I mentioned life expectancy going up by about 20 years and how long it took from the Stone Age to the 1980s to get that sort of improvement. I mentioned the huge improvement in literacy. And if you believe in educated people as the driver of change, there's just a lot more knowledge out there and understanding. And the number of desperately poor people has gone down by about 300 million, despite the world's population going up by 2 billion. This has never happened in history before. Historically, when you had rapid population growth, the number of desperately poor people increased, even if their relative share declined. So it's a different time. And as we try and make sense of this time, and try and understand the reaction against it, so if it's so great, why are people so angry? What can we look to? Now, I don't believe that history repeats itself, but it does rhyme. And there's a particular set of lessons that I believe that can be learned from the Renaissance. And that's the subject of the book I did with Chris, Age of Discovery. Trying to make sense of tumultuous change, because that's what the Renaissance was. And we celebrate the Renaissance 500 years later. Incredible da Vinci's, Botticelli's, and others, because it totally transformed the world. It totally transformed perspective, as we see in the arts. And, of course, it transformed the way the world was understood. We went from Europe with angels and dragons on a flat earth at the edge to total circumnavigation and Mercator's projection within a very short period of time. The only thing Mercator didn't know about, of course, was your little island. <laughs> but the rest of the world was pretty much there. And in that, not only the earth transformed, but of course our relationship to the heavens and the universe. From an earth-centric world with the sun and everything revolving around it to orbits and suns and the earth going around the sun, Copernicus, followed by Galileo and others later driven by an information revolution. Before the Gutenberg press, only monks and a very select group of people, less than 1% of the European population, could read and write. There were very expensive handwritten manuscripts. Most people had no access to information. And those manuscripts were in Latin, not in their own languages. 
So the church became the authority. What people understood about the world was from the priests. And in this world, the ability to create was totally stifled. But with this revolution, ideas traveled like wildfire. All sorts of ideas, scientific ideas, creative ideas. And I believe strongly that the Renaissance would never have existed without this information revolution. Within 50 years of the Gutenberg Press, 250 million books were printed and billions of political pamphlets. This was an information revolution like nothing that had ever gone before. And with that, ideas spread like wildfire. People learned quicker, innovation accelerated, and that's what we celebrate 500 years later. Florence, of course, became the place to go to. Over 30% of the population was foreign. It was a place to learn. But it ended in total disaster. The diseases that went with the ships to the New World killed most Native Americans. And jihadists took over Florence, deposed the Medicis, hung the experts and intellectuals from the trees, killed the gays, burnt the books, the bonfire of the vanities, the burning of books. And of course, the authority of the church was totally shattered. Luther pinning up his treatises, going viral, creating a new religion, which came through Oxford, outside my college, seven people, seven Catholics, were burnt. And this process ran for hundreds of years, the religious wars. Of course, it led to a counter-reaction, the Inquisitions. The church had been incredibly corrupt. You could buy your way to heaven with indulgences. The poor didn't feel that this period of globalization worked for them. The spices, the furs, the gold that came back from the New World didn't help them at all. They couldn't afford it. And the scribes and many others were put out of work. And if you read the work of Luther, for example, a lot of it is against corruption and against the substitution of new machines and new technologies for workers. So this anti-expert sentiment and anti-authority sentiment that we experience today has a precedent. It has a precedent in this period of hyper-change of the Renaissance. My concern is that we are reproducing some of these and we need to learn the lessons more rapidly to avoid the way that the Renaissance ended. The first thing that I think we need to get our heads around is this, that while the walls have come down between societies, within societies, they're going up everywhere. All countries which are rapidly globalizing are experiencing rising inequality. And this is because of globalization. And that's because when you change more rapidly, people get left behind more quickly. The returns to being in the right place at the right time are higher and higher in a rapidly evolving world. Far from the world being flat, as Tom Friedman said, the world is much more mountainous. Being in a place matters more than ever. A place where there are jobs, a place where there's technological change, a place that's happening.
in terms of globalization. But most people that are left out can't afford to go there. The housing prices are too high. There's too much congestion in transport. They've got to look after their elderly parents or young children, and they get left behind. And when you look at the data on who voted for Brexit and who voted for Trump, it's not the changing places. This is not a re revolt against change by people that are at the changing places. London voted 68% to remain. New York, San Francisco, Boston, etc., were overwhelmingly against Trump. It was the places, the rural places, the small towns, the places that are not changing that were voting against change. So inequality is growing and we need to worry more about those left behind and how we ensure that this process of change doesn't lead to more and more divided societies. And it's not just income divisions. Angus Deaton uh, with his partner Anne Case, uh, Angus won the Nobel Prize last year for economics, has done this remarkable work showing that the life expectancy of white non-Hispanics in the US has collapsed. These are mortality rates, death rates. And you see, while for the rest of the population and for other countries, life expectancy is increasing, mortality is coming down, for this particular group of people, life expectancy has come down. In fact, these people's life expectancy is lower than their parents. And their chance of getting a job is lower than their parents. So globalization for them doesn't mean jobs and improvements. Globalization means a destruction of their lives. This is largely through what Angus calls the diseases of despair that come from unemployment and frustration, alcoholism, drug addiction, suicide, murder, etc. The second great challenge of globalization is this. That when we connect, not only good things connect, really terrible things connect as well. And so the question is, how do we have interconnected systems without being hyper-interdependent? How do we have great airport hubs without them being the super spreaders of pandemics? How do we have great international financial systems without them being the spreaders of cascading financial crises? How do we have integrated cyber systems without the events we've seen in the last few days? How do we ensure that interdependency does not lead to collapse? What I call the butterfly defect of globalization in a previous book, a play obviously on Lorenz's butterfly effect. And the second dimension of this is how do we ensure that goods don't lead to bads? How do we ensure that the world climbs the energy curve without catastrophic <coughs> climate change? How do we ensure that when we all, that more and more people are able to take antibiotics, that we don't have rising antibiotic resistance, which will make all of them ineffective? How do we ensure that we can all enjoy our sushi without the total collapse of the tuna stocks? The sums of individual goods, which come from the freedoms of choice and income, when we connect them, become bads. And this tension between individual freedom and choice, and the reason we want more income is to have more choice, and the impact on others becomes more and more acute. When we're poor living in a village, what we do doesn't impact on anyone in the world. 
and their lives don't impact on ours. But all of us, every minute of our lives, are doing things which affect others. And the higher our incomes and the more connected we are, the more that is the case. And so this tension between individual and collective becomes more and more acute, and of course it becomes more and more global. It doesn't matter what Australia decides to do on climate change. If some other countries don't decide the same thing, Australia's decisions will not be effective. And the same is true on antibiotics, and the same is true on tuna and sushi and everything else you can think of, which is a global problems, commons problem. So this tension between individual countries and individuals and more countries and more people is big. And as there are more and more people, we ask ourselves the question, has globalization exceeded the planetary boundaries? Or in another previous book of mine, is the planet full? I'm going to come back to that. I want to race through three sets of megatrends. I'm going to race through demographic megatrends. I'm going to race through the economic megatrends and the technological megatrends very quickly. And I'm going to come back to some of these adding up questions and try and provide a renaissance lens to them. Well, I mentioned that life expectancy is increasing. And this is the data for this. And this draws on the Oxford Martin School, which I've been privileged to be the director of for the past uh, 10 years, which has a very big group working on many of the areas I'll be speaking about, including demographics. So life expectancy increasing and converging. The big surprise to me has been the collapse of fertility around the world. With most countries in the world now, below replacement level. And this is a dramatic story. Africa is the only uncertainty. The question is, will Africa follow the rest of the world's path? And at what pace will it do so? So this is a dramatic story of convergence at very low fertility rates and the world's population stabilizing. All regions of the world except Africa projected to stabilize within the next decade or so. And with this, we get a stabilization of the world's population, I think, at around 10 billion. Again, the uncertainty largely related to Africa. And with that, a doubling of median ages around the world. People living longer and longer and uh, having less and less children, you get a doubling of fertility, both in rich and in poor countries. This changes many things, including politics and economics, in dramatic ways. So we need to remove from our mental maps ideas of population pyramids and put in place this sort of structure. And I hope when you look at it, you see a vase that you put flowers into. But because I'm an economist, I look at it and see a coffin standing up. <laughs> this has dramatic implications for many, many things about societies. The obvious thing that jumps out of all these demographic projections is the obvious fact to any woman, but not to man, which is this is the proof that women are wiser than men. Okay? They live, they're born to live to the same age, but they live longer everywhere in every country in the world. And the simple reason is they don't make as many stupid decisions. They don't smoke as much, they don't drink as much, they don't stick as many knives into each other, and they don't drive as many cars into as many trees, and they live longer everywhere. But the opposite is happening at the bottom of these projections. More boys than girls in all countries of the world being born. And the reason is that when you live in a sexist society 
and the status, income, career prospects of boys or greater than girls, and you have the technologies to choose, people everywhere, sort of echoing this thing, isn't it? Uh, are choosing to have boys. So increasing gender imbalances are characteristic of all countries of the world going forward. And this weight of the elderly on the young. And this has dramatic implications, particularly for societies where expectations are of retirement and pensions and social security. When these packages of social security and retirement were built, average life expectancy on retirement was five years, and average real risk adjusted economic returns, financial returns, were 4%. Now, life expectancy on retirement is already over 20 years, and real risk adjusted returns are below half a percent. So you have to save 100 times more for equivalent standard of living in your old age. Where's the money going to come from? Where's it going to go to? What's it going to do to the relationship between the elderly and young's asset distribution? The young will inherit their parents' houses if they're lucky when they're 70. And the parents won't want to pay for their education or for anything else because they'll have to hold on to the money themselves and their jobs as long as they can. Now, there's a hard barrier at about 90 with current technologies, a 90% probability of neurodegenerative diseases. So until then, people will stay in work. With current technologies, they're going to have to exit work. But that, for anyone here younger than about 40, don't have to worry about that problem. It'll be solved. Uh, the problem is, if you're my age, uh, you need to worry about it. Every country is unique. China, of course, one-child policy. You see the gender imbalances, particularly acute in China. The U.S., one of the healthiest structures. And I'm sorry, I haven't had time to do Australia yet. But this was done before Trump. And that really matters. Because what happens with immigration dramatically affects these demographic structures going forward. Because in the U.S., half the children born today are born to immigrant parents, even though they're only 11%, or grandparents, 11% of the population. This really matters. Immigration matters for many, many reasons, but this is one of them. So the workforces of the world change dramatically. China's workforce this year is 1.6 million less than last year. I think world wages will go up uh, double in China in the next five years or so. And migration becomes more and more important. The workforce of the OECD, the advanced economies, goes down from about 800 million to about 630 million over this period of the next 33 years or so. Migration is important for many, many, many reasons. What I call exceptional people have shaped world history, obviously shaped totally Australia, and will shape the future. And one of the big concerns I have is in this debate around immigration. We're going to be much too short-term in nature, in Australia, in Europe, in the US, and in many other places. And we can come back to that in discussion if you're interested. Let me whiz through some economics and then technology. My view of future economic prospects is that the future is meant to look, is going to look a lot like the recent past. In other words, emerging markets will grow at about three to five times the rate of the old advanced economies. And there are only three reasons for this. The first is they learned the terrible lessons of the 70s, 80s, and 90s crises. So on average, 
their economies are much better managed than the average of the advanced economies. The second is they, because they're better managed, they're investing at higher rates and increasing their rates of investment in the key drivers of future competitiveness, which are health, education, infrastructure, research and development. And the third reason is because I believe the future will be characterized by the butterfly defect, by systemic shock, by surprise. And in that world, the will and the ammunition really count in terms of your ability to respond to change. When you're growing at very low levels, as the advanced economies are, 1%, 2%, you cannot really throw money at problem solving or at new investment, at the renewal of your society, without taking from others. And that creates a political economy of gridlock in the advanced economies. You can only give by taking. Whereas when you're growing at 4, 5, 6, 7% as the emerging markets are, you can give a lot without taking. You can invest without cutting out what existing people's claims. So I'm very optimistic that China will continue to grow at over 6%. If you read the Financial Times, you'd think that's a disaster because they used to grow at 10%. Remember, size matters. China's a $17 trillion economy. It growing at 6% is adding more value every day than when it was growing at 10% on an $8 trillion economy 10 years ago. Size matters. If it kept growing at 10, 12%, it would be the whole world economy before too long. When you're big, you've got to slow down. India, 7%. Asia as a whole, 6%. That's incredible. Europe, North America have never grown at even half that rate on a sustained period of time. Africa, without Egypt, Nigeria, and South Africa growing at 4%, which is good if you add them 1.5. They're pulling Africa back, which is very sad. Latin America, 3%. North America, the US, to Europe, to Japan, zero. In that world, you get emerging markets being the story. Emerging markets are the reason the world economy is growing at over 3%. And as emerging markets become a bigger and bigger part of the world story, global growth rates go up and they become more stable because there are more engines of growth. When the US gets a cold, the rest of the world no longer gets fever. And that's very healthy. So emerging markets become a bigger and bigger share, growing to 80% of global economic activity. And many emerging market countries reach the per capita income levels of the advanced economies today, $30,000, dollars $50,000 per capita. Of course, per capita depends on not only your income growth, but your population growth. You divide total income growth by population growth to get your per capita income. Now, because China's got no population growth, all income growth is per capita growth. It goes over $30,000 per capita. Australia today is about $45,000, I think. India to 10, Africa doesn't get about five. But this all depends on what happens with the demographics. And you get the explosion of this new middle class, 4.9 billion new middle class consumers, mainly 66% in Asia. What are they going to consume and what's it going to do to the planet? It's really an Asian story. This is global shares of consumption going forward to 2050. The bottom is China, India, other Asia, Japan, US, Europe. One of the many reasons why Brexit was such a crazy idea was that Europe becomes at least twice as significant as the US going forward as a market. So Britain has to look east, not to the US, 
for future market opportunity. And it's really Asia that's, that's dominating in all of this. But is there enough stuff out there? Or is there enough atmosphere, land, water, and everything? I'm going to come back to that. I want to whiz through some technologies. Now, all, all predictions, of course, are fraught with difficulty. The best minds in the best institutions habitually get them wrong. So why are we going to be different? Well, I'm not suggesting we are, but I think what you need to do is understand the big structural shifts. It's very easy to look back and say, yeah, these things look ridiculous today. Each of these devices replaced all of those. It's impossible to put up the slide of what represents the future in five years' time. So we don't know what's going to happen. But there are some certainties, or close to certainties. And one of them is this most remarkable story of Moore's Law. Big debates about this. But there's over 40 people in the Oxford Martin School working on different dimensions of this, including quantum computing. And they are pretty confident that we'll continue to see a doubling of processing speed about every 18 months for about the same price. That means we'll have a million times the power for the same price in 20 years' time. What are we going to do with it? How is it going to shape our lives? We don't know that, but that this engine is continuing to grow at an almost exponential rate. I think we can have some confidence in. There are many things we know we can already do. This is from the nanomedicine lab in the Oxford Martin School. This is a nano needle, about eight billionths of a meter wide, going through an individual cancer stem cell at a time of 44 billionths of a second. So the ability to build at the atomic and molecular level, to manipulate, to control, is one of the things we can do. Another thing we can do is understand something like stem cell. This is from the Oxford Martin School Stem Cell Lab. This is the lab technician's skin turned into a heart cell. This is second generation, so there's no rejection issues or ethical issues associated with this. Other revolutions that are happening include these. This is genetic manipulation. The back mouse is a wild mouse. The front mouse is a genetically modified mouse. The back mouse drops out after about 20 minutes, 200 meters. The front mouse goes for two hours, two kilometers. Ten times the power, same mice. Very happy mouse, the front one. So this power which is being unleashed, and it's much greater as well in the chemical sphere, the ability to manipulate, to enhance, to control, is unprecedented in its intensity and in terms of the opportunities as well as the dangers that will come with it. And of course it raises very, very big ethical issues, including those associating with genetic manipulation now possible in embryo. So the rebuilding our babies to do different things, etc. The ethical and other legal regulatory issues associated with this are simply enormous. Should this be done at the country level, at the individual level, at the global level? Who's to choose these things? And the extraordinary thing about the genome-related technologies is that this isn't at exponential speed. This is at super exponential speed, more than exponential speed. So Craig Venter, who's on my board, did the first human genome. It cost him $3 billion. It took him 10 years in the 1980s. That exact same process can now be done in 20 minutes for about $200. And it's going down in price and in speed exponentially. So this sort of power will become 
democratized in society. Individuals will be able to do things which were simply unimaginable, that took whole buildings of scientists to do in the 1980s. And with this new power, we have a whole new dimension of threat and power relationship, an asymmetry. We need to learn urgently from Bering's bank. You know, this bank had existed for over 200 years. Can you imagine over a 200-year period the technological, political, and other changes that the managers of this bank had seen and surfed? And one day, this incredible group of managers, not the same ones that started it 200 years before, their heirs, woke up to discover that this bank didn't exist anymore. It had been totally bankrupted overnight by one individual playing with the new technology, Nick Leeson. So that power, which is now totally asymmetric, which we see in cyber as well, is growing very, very rapidly. The other dimension of this is systemic risk, which I mentioned. Now, systemic risk is not new. We think in the UK, a rat coming off a ship in Poole might have led to the death of half the British population in the plague. So the idea of some you know, early globalization leading to pandemics is not a new idea. But what's new is the pace and scale of this. So the swine flu that starts in Mexico City is in 160 countries in 30 days. That's new. And the emerging infections group in the Oxford Martin School has modeled this and shown that it exactly replicates airline traffic. So the super spreaders of the goods in this case, airline hubs become the super spreaders of the bads. Indeed, anything can be anywhere now in 36 hours. So how to manage these complex integrated systems? And of course, with cyber, what we see is an even more dramatic story because this is instantaneous. And it has become the nervous system of our lives. Can you imagine your lives without your mobile devices, without your ability to operate in cybersphere? And as it's, this is growing exponentially, this risk is growing too. So it'll open our bank accounts, it'll open our front door locks, it'll control our vehicle to vehicle communications, and increasingly it'll enter into our bodies. I have colleagues in Oxford who are already beta testing, for example, insulin release into their bodies. Web enabled. So trust and integrity becomes more and more important as this grows and our interdependency with it grows. Another dimension to this is, of course, what technologies are going to be doing with jobs. You might have seen the work that the Oxford Martin Schools produced, which suggests that 47% of US jobs are vulnerable to machine intelligence and robotics over the next 20 years. And what's particularly disturbing about this work is that the vulnerability is greater for poorer countries, particularly middle-income countries, like China, like South Africa, like Brazil, Mexico, and many others who have large manufactured manufacturing centers of routine work and call centers of routine work, because this is precisely what machines are very good at. Anything that's routine and rules-based, back offices, all of that was likely to be disintermediated within the next 10, 15 years. Raising fundamental questions about the development model. Will there be premature deindustrialization for countries? Another dimension to this technological shift is 3D printing. This is a little video I took um, when I visited Elon Musk at SpaceX. This is one of his rocket parts 
printed with a 3D printer. In fact, 70% of his rocket is printed on site by his printers. So we'll move to a world of reshoring, because it'll be the price of capital, not the price of labor, that's going to determine production location, raising many, many questions about where things happen, what materials are needed for their production. And as we go into this, people will say, are these technologies good or are they bad? Are they helping me? Am I in control? And what we see from Germany is a very classic example where societies have decided just to ban some technologies. They've banned GMOs. They've banned nuclear power. It's not that technologies exist that determine their application. It's the choices that societies make. So ensuring that we're able to manage our machines and that they don't conflict with us becomes more and more important as it enters more and more dimensions of us. I want to end with a series of thoughts regarding how these things fit together. Well, I mentioned that it's a very old question about how we manage common resources. And the classical economic examples are related to fisheries. It's rational for us as individuals to go fishing, but if everyone in town does the same thing, that's the end of fishing for everyone. And this applies at the global level as well. We also know that nature doesn't know what price is. No matter how much the rhino horn's worth, the rhino will not reproduce more. And we know that what's rational for us is irrational if others do it too. Antibiotic resistance, a classic case. This is the uh, tuna market in uh, Tokyo. This tuna went for, uh, I think what that is in Australian dollars. 2.5 million uh, Australian dollars. This is economic response to the scarcity of a natural resource. Of course, the tuna don't know how much they're worth. They don't reproduce more when they're worth more. Just more and more high-tech fishermen chase the remaining tuna, so you get extinction. Unfortunately, governments are not very good at this either. This is the Aral Sea, shared by six governments, all doing the right thing, drawing water to feed their people in the short term, collectively a disaster. And so we need to think very deeply, and the commission that was mentioned was part of this, on how we manage these, particularly because we now face perhaps the most complex problem we've ever faced. We in the wealthy countries have caused the problem over 150 years, not Australians, not that long, but Europe, by putting up carbon into the atmosphere. But the solution now has to mainly come from emerging markets because they already account for over 60% of emissions. Because we're doing too little too late, the scientists that I speak to in the Oxford Martin School, we've got about 40 people working on this, are absolutely convinced that we're well in a world of over two degrees. Now remember, two degrees is the whole Earth temperature. It includes the oceans, which are heat sinks. So many land areas that are way above that. And of course, farmers and individuals don't care about averages. You care about a day of a temperature that's too high that kills your crop, or too low, or a wind that's too strong, or a hailstone that's too big. It's the fluctuation around these averages, and those fluctuations will be more intense. So I'm convinced that this is absolutely existential issue for many people. Of course, we know the solution. We have to radically get off our carbon addiction 
very, very rapidly. But difficult because we have to do so not only while we continue to have energy sources, but while we allow the rest of the world to still climb the energy curve. Because one option that is not on the table is saying to people, sorry, the planet is full, uh, the atmosphere is full, there's no more space, wait 1,000 years, which is how long it takes for carbon to dissipate. That option is not on the table. Now, we also know that poor people are always also most vulnerable to risk, not least in Africa, where there will be the most dramatic temperature changes. This is some projections. Crop changes. This is work from the World Bank showing vulnerability uh, to risk. And you see how vulnerable people in emerging markets are compared to in the advanced economies. And the intuitive sort of example of this is just think about uh, places like Phoenix, Arizona, and Las Vegas, which are amongst the most rapidly growing cities in the US. Of course, they're in deserts. Um, it's just that people have enough money to air condition, to pipe water, etc. That's what you do if you're wealthy. You don't really feel the bite of climate change. Except if you're in Miami, you will, because you'll be washed away. Or Los Angeles. Who's going to deal with this problem? Well, unfortunately, the global governance system is totally unfit for 21st century purpose. Built at a different time, served some purposes, but no longer so. Small changes, largely rearranging the furniture. And I doubt that Trump would even pick up the sofa. So we like individual current, uh, countries with our own little cabins on an ocean liner, but no pilot on the deck as the planet drifts. And like many dimensions of globalization, this is for many good reasons. And we can celebrate the fact that the world is no longer run by 12 white men smoking cigars in a room. That's progress, as was the case after the Second World War. We can also celebrate the fact that new powers have risen, that there's a more even global distribution of power than there was in the immediate post-war period. But in this process, we're in a power vacuum. So we know what's happening. We have a hyper-interconnected system, but we have no steerage of the system. And what's particularly, I think, salutary about the financial crisis is that finance is actually the best by far of the global systems. You know, when we think about our national countries, the Treasury in Australia and the Central Bank are the strongest national institutions outside the intelligence communities. And the same is true in the UK, the same is true of the Fed Reserve in, and Treasury in the US, etc. And the same is true at the global level. So the IMF compared to, say, the United Nations, total different league. Much better people, much better data, much more power, much more joined up. They all play golf together at Jackson Hole once a year, the central bankers. This is a small elite with a very clear mission, which is financial stability. And so when we see the financial crisis and we see how utterly inept the experts were at seeing it coming and preventing it, we understand why people get disillusioned with experts and authority. This is the most authoritative system the world has. And it totally failed us with the financial crisis. There were five reasons it failed us. Firstly, it was governed by old civil servants that were thinking incremental changes in the world. They didn't realize that globalization had led to new types of complexity and systemic risk. 
It was managed at the local level when the system was hyper-interconnected. This challenge of national governance, global systems. The technologies that the kids were playing with in the trading rooms were simply not understood by the audit committees, central bankers, and other civil servants like me. I did maths and physics in my first degree, but I couldn't write a credit derivative today or understand one. These are smart kids that were being rewarded for legally getting around the, the rules, regulatory arbitrage. The short-termism which pervades the whole system, mark-to-market accounting, incentives and bonuses driven on short-term profits, and the ubiquitous MBA that went from 50,000 people in the US mainly in the 1980s to half a million people now a year taking it in 160 countries. That's the downside of globalization. Globalization of MBAs and short-termism just in time mark-to-market, lean is mean, all of those sorts. So this is just the citations of lean management in the literature. And you see the takeoff with globalization. So this ideology of how to manage and the short-termism embedded in it became absolutely global. And of course, with that, not too little data, but too much data. Blinded by the blizzard of information, and losing values, ethics, judgment, intuition in the process. Everyone knew there was going to be a financial crisis. I was working in Washington in the run-up to the financial crisis. The cleaner in my office told me she'd bought a second home. Instead of saying, I think that's wonderful, I should have said, this is crazy. How does this go on? And everyone knew that, but they couldn't take away the punch bowl while the party was going. Short-termism, politics, and relying on the data and false ideologies of economics that led them to that. So it's no wonder that people say, the experts don't know what's going on. We can't manage globalization. The past is better than the present. Let's be more protectionist, nationalist. The challenge of that is that this idea that you can stop change, that you can stop integration, is profoundly misguided. Because we're not connected in the sense of being little Lego blocks as countries that we can disconnect each other. We are entangled. And this entanglement cannot be undone. There's no wall high enough that's going to keep out climate change or a pandemic or a cyber attack. And those walls will keep out what's going to actually make us thrive in the future. New technologies, new opportunities, new markets, and the cooperation with others that is necessary in order to solve these massive problems. So we need to be more connected, but we need to also be resilient. We need to be able to be close, but understand what this closeness means. And in that, we need the wisdom, I think, that we can draw from the Renaissance. Now, the remarkable thing about da Vinci's David when it was unveiled in Florence is People were in total awe. When you read the reports of the time, no one had seen anything like this ever before. It was a revolution in art and in depiction. And one of the many reasons it was a revolution was it was the first time they'd ever seen David not standing on top of Goliath with the severed head in his hand or with his sword in Goliath's heart in a pose of victory. It's the first time they'd ever seen this.
pose, which is a reflective David, thinking, understanding, in order to defeat the challenge. And that's what I believe we need to be able to do. And if we can, we can rock on to a very, very happy old age. So that's what Age of Discovery and the other book, Pursuit of Development, are about. I hope you find it of interest, and I look forward to engaging in a conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.